Well, I want to welcome you all here. Welcome to those of you that are over in the, the venue. And I thank the Lord, Ben, for you leading worship, and Jared and Brittany. John's wife was over on the platform leading worship over there today, and I uh, found out that John's not the only worship leader in that family. Uh, Brittany, thank you for, for using your gifts and, and talents over there. If you're listening on the radio, we're glad you're with us, or maybe you're listening on the internet. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of people that listen all different kinds of ways, and we're just glad that, that you're listening. But if you are visiting with us for the very first time, we're just really grateful you're here. And uh, everybody in this room, of everybody over in, in the venue, at one time or another, we were all brand new visitors. There was a time when it was our first moment in, in church. And I can remember as a kid, I'd go to Modesto Covenant, and uh, I'd be really nervous. I didn't know what they were doing, and I'd be sweating bullets in there. I'd go to First Baptist. I remember the first time I was there, and I didn't know the Lord, or Man, I was just all nervous, and I know you can be here and, and be nervous. I, I, I get it. We all get it. And, you know, we had you standing up. Then we had you sitting down. Then we had, you know, all these kids up here. And then these little green baskets went by you. And what's next? Well, um, we're just going to look at the Word of God together. That's what's next. And um, inside your, your, uh, the, the, your program, I have put all of the, the, the verses that we're going to look at. They're all written inside of here, and you can kind of track along with me. They'll come up on the jumbotrons, and we invite you to kind of follow along. There's a place for you to kind of keep notes and, and all, that, all that kind of stuff. Um, I want you to reach inside your program, and I want you to pull out that little card. It says Day of Prayer. Just pull that out. On uh, Saturday, October uh, 6th, we're calling our church to a, a day of prayer from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and on your way out of here, and even over in the venue, there are some tables that are set up where our elders, pastors will be there. And we want you to pick a half an hour block of time. You can pick more than that if you want, but it could be from 11 to 11.30, you know, it could be 1 to 1.30, it doesn't matter what the time is, and you'll sign up for it. We'll give you a little bookmark to remind you of that time. And then you'll show up here at the altar, and for a half an hour we're going to pray, and uh, basically, it's kind of a silent time of prayer. The elders will, will begin in the altar room with you, and you'll pray for the staff quietly and the pastors, and then you'll make your way to that wall, our prayer wall. And if you go out there, you'll see that there's just hundreds and hundreds of these car, cards already on that wall. And this is what we want you to do. We want everybody, even over in the venue, we want you to think about some people in your life that they don't know the Lord yet. And we want you to put their first names on here. Could be uh, somebody uh, who's in your family, maybe a son, a daughter, it could be a parent, a grandparent, might be somebody that you'll work with, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody you work out with at the, at the gym. It might be the, the name of the guy that comes over and cuts your lawn. Maybe it's the guy or the gal who, you know, services your pool. Maybe it's the person that cuts and colors your hair. There's lots of ways we interface with people. It could be your, your mailman, Right? And one of the things that God wants us to do is he wants us to interface with these people and he wants us to pray for them. And so I want you to think about who are some people in my life right now and you're going to write them on here at the end of the gathering, you'll just go out to that wall, pin it to that wall and part of our prayer time will be we're going to stop there and just quietly pray for these names. Now one of the things that's kind of tragic 
and I don't mean to beat anybody up, but I hope the Holy Spirit does, is that some of you can't think of one person who you do life with that you know who doesn't know the Lord. You come to church and all your church friends are here and you go to your small group and they're all believers and you go to your Bible studies and they're all believers and you know you only drink milk from a Christian cow. I mean, now your whole life is just all around believers and, and, and I want you to know something. Listen to me, that's just really tragic that you would not have made relationships with people that don't know the Lord. And maybe this moment is just the way the Holy Spirit will nudge you to begin to go, you know what? There is a guy that comes over and mows my lawn every week and all I do is cut him a check. And God brings him to my house every week. Maybe that's somebody I, I might pray for. I don't know who it'll be or what it'll be, but we want you to fill that out. And then during our time of prayer, you'll leave that wall. You'll go to the Welcome Center, and we'll have a, an American flag there, and we'll pray for America and all of our, our leaders, the president, our senators, our mayor, those kinds of things, pray for the election. And then we'll end at the prayer wall where we'll have all of our global partners and local partners, and we'll pray. And so you'll just kind of make your way around. And it's basically just silent prayer. And the elders will, will lead you. And if you want to go around twice or three times, you're certainly free to do that. But we want all of you to sign up after the, the, the gathering's over with, okay? We want all of you to participate. Well, we're in a series here called Life. Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He said the thief's purpose, the devil's purpose, the demon's purpose, false prophets, false teachers, their purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy that's what their goal is in life. That's the job description of the demons. They just want to mess your life up. That's all they want to do. But Jesus said, my purpose is way different. My purpose is to give them, that's you, a rich and satisfying life. Now, now Jesus didn't say, I've come that you might have a religion. Jesus isn't interested in you having a religion. He didn't say, I, I've come to give you a, a set of rules and regulations that you have to live by. He, he didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, I've come to give you, you know, top 10 things you're, you're not allowed to do in church. Don't do them, whatever you do. He didn't say that. He said, I've come. My purpose is that you would have a rich and satisfying life. But here's the deal. This new life, this rich and satisfying life doesn't happen automatically, does it? In other words, you can be a Christian and not experience this incredible life that Jesus came to give you on you know, this side of heaven, which is really sad. In fact, I meet Christians every day that are missing out on this life, which is why I chose to do this series. I've been here at Big Valley Grace for almost 30 years, and there isn't a week that goes by that I don't meet somebody who names the name of Christ. They, they're a Christian. They're a follower of the Lord, and they're not experiencing this life. They would tell you that life is boring. Life is a drag. It's mundane. It's just, you know, whatever. It's anything but rich and satisfying. And I want you, my, my brothers and sisters, to better experience this amazing life that Jesus came to give you. And one of the things that will help you uh, really live it and experience it is when you understand your position in Christ or, or how 
God sees you, which is what we're going to talk about today. I heard the story of this Native American, and that's a politically correct term for, for an Indian. Um, and this Native American was going to go visit his friend in New York City, Manhattan Island. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's one of the most fascinating places on all the planet. All these skyscrapers, and there's just taxis everywhere, people, the streets are just packed, and noise, honking horns, it's unbelievable. Well, this Native American had never been there, and his friend put him up in this grand hotel. His friend shows up at the hotel and says, hey, I'm down in the lobby waiting for you, and so this uh, Native American makes his way down into the lobby, and they meet up and hadn't seen each other in a long time. They made their way out onto the street, and when they got on onto the street, of course, there was all this noise. I mean, if you've ever been there, it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre. It's just kind of surreal. These huge buildings and planes and noise and cussing and swearing and, you know, taxis and honking. Just unbelievable. Well, this Native American stopped. And he said, I hear a cricket. And there's people hustling and bustling all down the street, bumping into each other, all the noise. And his buddy said, well, what do you mean you hear a cricket? He goes, no, I'm telling you, I hear a cricket. And his buddy said, there's no way you could hear a cricket. With all the noise and the horns and the planes and the screaming and yelling, there's no way. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm telling you, I hear a cricket. And he made his way over across the street to this little planter, and he found some wood chips, and he moved the wood chips out of the way, and sure enough, there was this little cricket. And his buddy went, that's unbelievable. How in the world could you have heard that cricket in the midst of all this noise, the chaos happening here? And this Native American said, well, it's just simply what you have your ears tuned into. He said, let me illustrate it to you. And this Native American reached into his pocket and pulled out a bunch of change. Planes flying over, making noises. Cars just jammed up, honking, people yelling, screaming. And this Native American threw the money up in the air. And as it hit the cement, all around, people stopped. <laughs> they knew the sound of money. They knew what a nickel sounded like when it hit cement. Uh -huh. They knew what a dime sounded like, what a quarter sounded like. They knew the sound of a penny when it hit the cement. My, my prayer for you, almost weekly, is that somehow when you, you come here, that you have your spiritual ears and your spiritual eyes tuned into the things that the Lord would have to say to you. There, there, there's lots of things out there that we hear. There's lots of things out there that we're tuned into. But this is one of those moments when the, the goal, the prayer is, is that somehow your spiritual ears and eyes are tuned into what God wants to say to you that you would hear clearly from the Lord. I remember I, as a kid, I would go to the, drive to Turlock and go to the Turlock Fair. And one of my favorite places to go was inside the Fun House. Because inside the Fun House, you always got to this room 
where they had all these crazy warped mirrors. You know, you'd get in front of them and some of those mirrors would make you look really short and fat, you know. Then you'd get in front of another one and it made you look like a stick, you know, really tall, you know. Then you'd get in front of another one that made you look svelte. Yeah, that's the mirror I like right there. Those mirrors gave you a distorted image of yourself. Those mirrors made you look differently than what you really, really were. And I know for a fact that many of you grew up in homes where things were said to you by your parents, grandparents, people in authority, could have been teachers, and they said things to you that gave you a distorted image of yourself. You're not worth anything. You're not valuable. You'll never, you'll never amount to anything. Why can't you be more talented, more, you know, than, than, you know, than somebody else? How come you can't be like your brother or your sister, right? Sometimes you hear preachers on TV. There's a lot of yahoos on TV that'll give you a distorted image of what, what God thinks about you. And it's my goal that over the next few minutes as we look at God's word that somehow you would tune in to how God sees you. Because if you could grasp, listen to me Christian, if you could grasp to just a little bit of what God thinks about you, let me tell you something, it'll revolutionize your life. It'll change your life. You see, some of you have this distorted view of what God thinks about you. So the idea of living this incredible life is just, it doesn't mean anything. You've been looking in a, a warped mirror for a long time. For a long time, I had a distorted image of myself. I, I believed that I was nothing but a chance meeting of two molecules a billion years ago. That I was basically just educated goo. That I was just simply a, a, a coincidence of nature. That I was a, a little higher up the you know, food chain than an ape. And so that was the image I had of myself. And let me tell you something. I lived like an animal. Because that's what I was taught, that I'm nothing more than, than, than just a little farther up the food chain, you see? So I had this distorted view of myself. I had this distorted view of you. We're all just but animals. And I tended to treat people like animals. I didn't know. I just didn't know. But there came a moment when I began to really get God's word. I was able to tune in my spiritual ears, my spiritual heart to what God had to say about me. And that in turn changed my life. How I lived my life, how I viewed life radically changed me forever. Proverbs chapter 23 says this, as he as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. In other words, what you believe about yourself determines to a great degree how you're going to you know, live out your life. So it's super, super important that you know what God thinks about you. You see, the, the Bible isn't like those funhouse mirrors. The Bible doesn't distort anything about you. 
The Bible simply tells you the truth about you, and some of it isn't, isn't fun. Some of what God has to say um, can be disturbing. Jesus said, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's the truth that sets you free from your hangups. It's the truth that clears up any distortions that you might have about yourself. It's the truth that helps you see your, yourself and your life more clearly. And I want you to know, for some of you, this gathering here this morning might be the most important gathering of your entire life. Because maybe for the very first time, you'll begin to see yourself the way God sees you. And that's my prayer for you. That somehow you really grasp how God views you. It'll change your life forever. I guarantee it. So let's read our text. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're just going to look at a couple of verses here. But our brother Peter penned these words to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, but you, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now things have changed radically. Now you have received mercy. Two simple little verses that are just unbelievably powerful, just packed with, with meaning. So, so, so how does God see you? Number one, you're accepted by God. You're accepted by God. He says, you are a chosen people. God chose you. He accepted you. Beloved, Peter uses language here that only applied to the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. But now, since the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, now that he's at the right hand of the Father, it now applies to us also. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're now part of his chosen, which means God has accepted you. He accepted you. Now, most of us spend our entire lives trying to earn acceptance, don't we? We want it from our parents. We want it from our spouses. We want it from the people that we work with. We want it from our neighbors. Everybody wants to be accepted. Everybody. Why? Because the desire to be accepted is deep, and it drives us to do all kinds of crazy things. The desire to be accepted influences the kind of clothes you wear, it influences the, the kind of car that you drive. It influences the, the, the kind of house you buy, the neighborhood you buy it in, right? You got the right car and you're in the right neighborhood, and wow, there's a certain group of people that really accept you. It can even influence the career that you go into. I know some people that they were made to do this, but for whatever reason in our culture, wow, that's not cool, that's kind of low class, and so they try so hard to do this because they want to be accepted by a certain group of people, you see. 
We love the feeling that says somebody has chosen me. Somebody has accepted me. Let me give you a, a teenage fast fact, okay? The need to be accepted outweighs the need to do what is right. In other words, uh, teenagers know what's right. You know, you've, you've taught them, you've shared with them, uh, their, their teachers have taught them what is right. They've come to the youth group, sat in Sunday school. They know what's right, but man, they want to be accepted by a group of people. And usually the need to be accepted outweighs the need to do what is right. That's why some of you have teenagers and you go, man, what in the world are they up to? What are they doing? Why would they, what, what, why would they do that? Why would they hang out with those people? Why would they go to that party? Why would they dress like that? Why would they do that to their body? They know it's right, but they want to be accepted. And if I have to do that or go there or wear this or pierce that, you know what, I'll do it. I just want to be accepted. But I want you to know this is true of many adults also. We love the feeling of being accepted. Somebody chose me for a award. Somebody chose me for an honor. Somebody chose me for a you know, promotion. Somebody chose me for some special opportunity. Do you know how great it felt that Aaron chose me? It was euphoric, and let me tell you why. I know there were all kinds of dudes that were after her. A lot younger dudes. But I won! Woo! She chose me! I didn't mean anything to you, unless you were one of the guys. She chose me. Out of all the guys she could have chosen, and she could have chosen just about anybody, I'll bet. She chose me. Whew. Let me tell you something, guys. You gotta start thinking about your woman that way. It'll change your marriage. It really would. I was thinking about it this week in my office, and I was going, man, Aaron chose me. Out of all the guys, she chose me, and I'm dancing around, and then I went, oh, my knee. Oh, my knee. Someone give me the Ben Gay. I can't go home with a bad knee. <laughs> you know, wow. <laughs> Beloved, one of the most euphoric feelings in all the world is to know that you were chosen, that you were accepted. On the other hand, being rejected is one of the worst feelings. And some of you can think back right now, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you were in elementary school. And it's recess, and the two best athletes are out at the kickball field, and, and you just wanted to play kickball. And now these two athletes are going to choose up teams. I'll take Jimmy. I'll take Tommy. I'll take Billy. I'll take Petey. And you're just going, oh, please, someone pick me. Someone choose me. Someone choose me. And it got down to the end, and man, nobody wanted you. It's such a crummy feeling, you've never forgot it, have you? And you're in your 50s. You're in your 60s. Let me tell you something. You, Christian, were chosen by God. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 15. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. 
I chose you. So when we're out there, you know, choosing up kickball teams, so to speak, Jesus said, I'll take you and I'll take you, and I'll choose you, and I'll take you, and I want you. Countrymen, I want you. I'll take you. He chose you. You're acceptable to him. But not only did he choose you, but he appointed you that you would go bear fruit. In other words, that you would go live this incredible life. He just didn't pick you to be on his kickball team, so you'd sit on the bench and go, oh, man, you know, life's a bummer. Life's a drag. It's boring, it's mundane, just sitting here doing nothing. No, he chose you that you might have an incredible life, a life in which you bear incredible fruit for, for him. Jesus said this in Romans chapter 15, it says that Christ has accepted you. Yes, there was a moment, beloved, when you know, you accepted the Lord. You invited Jesus into your life, right? We use that term, I accepted Christ. But one of the things that some of you don't realize is, is that Jesus accepted you. I love that song. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. When I was studying this week, I called up Pastor Scott and Say, let me tell you a song you gotta do. I'm in my office singing that song. I am a friend of God. And you can't sing that song and not smile. It's impossible. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me. You can't do it. I think there's just something in our DNA that when you sing a song like that, which is loaded with truth, kind of pulls your, your shoulders back a little bit. Yeah, I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. He chose you. He accepted you. You. Paul said this in Titus chapter 3. He said, Jesus treated us much better than we deserve. He made us acceptable to God and gave us the hope of eternal life. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. I want you to know, that, that one thought alone ought to change your life. You've been accepted by God. He chose you, chose me. Number two, you have access to God. You now have direct access to God. He says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. Now, depending on your background, this might be a, a scary thought, right? God calls you a priest. For some of you, you're, you're a little uncomfortable with that thought, right? I mean, depending on your background, that, that could be kind of confusing. It's not confusing to God. It's not confusing to God's word. The Holy Spirit filled Peter that he would pin these words that you have been chosen by God and now you are a part of his royal priesthood. Beloved, a, a priest had access to God that the average person didn't have. Now, when you get to the New Testament, er everything changed. God says that you as a follower of Jesus are now a part of his royal priesthood, which means that you now have access just like the priests in the Old Testament had. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter five. 
Paul said, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, since we, since we put our trust in the Lord, God now sees us just as if we hadn't sinned. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Beloved, because you've made peace with God, you now have access to God. Now, that word access is an important word. It's a word the Jews of that time would have understood really well. And the idea that the average person could have access to God was absolutely unthinkable to them. Because in the Old Testament, only the priests had access to God. The priest was the one who built the bridge between God and man. And so when Paul wrote this, that was scandalous that the average Joe guy could have access to God? Now let me unpack this just a bit more. In the Old Testament, God's house was the temple. Okay, in the Old Testament, God lived in, in, the, in the temple. His presence was manifest within the temple in a place called the Holy of Holies. And the only person who could go into the holy in the holies and have access to God, direct access to God, was the high priest. The Gentiles couldn't go in there. Women couldn't go in there. The average Jew couldn't go into the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go in there, and he could only go in there one time of year. It's called the Day of Atonement. And if he didn't do everything just right, just the way God said, he could lose his life. You see, right in front of the Holy of Holies was this ginormous veil. It was gigantic. It was like a big, thick curtain. And that veil that hung there separated God from you. And one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go around the veil and he could actually have access to God. Now, something happens to this veil right after Jesus dies. It says this in Matthew chapter 27. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he's on the cross, he gave up his spirit, he died. And at that moment, at that very moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. Beloved, at the very moment that Jesus dies on that cross, God tears that veil that separated God from man from the top to the bottom. And how do we know it was God? Because it was torn from the top to the bottom. If it had been torn from the bottom up, then, well, maybe a guy got in there with a sawzall. And, you know, and they just ripped it. No. Because it was tore from the top to the bottom, it had to be God. And why did God do that? Why did God at that moment rip that veil? He ripped that veil open because he was saying to you and to you and to you and to you and to me, look, you're acceptable to me. I chose you. And now you can have direct access to me. Amen. You now have it. You don't have to, you know, go through a priest. You don't have to offer a sacrifice to get to God. You don't have to work hard and be perfect to get to God. You personally can talk to God directly. 
anytime you want. His door's always open to you. It's one of the great things about giving your life to Jesus. Now, is there anything wrong with asking a pastor to pray for you? No. Anything wrong with going into the altar room and asking one of our elders, hey, would you pray for me? No. Anything wrong with asking somebody in your small group to pray for you? No. Anything wrong with asking a buddy to pray for you? No, nothing wrong with that. In fact, you should do that. But God wants you to know that you're so special to him. You now have direct access. You can come and be with God and just sit in his presence if you want and not say a word. If you want to flap your gums and tell him all the things he already knows already, you certainly are welcome to, 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 to do that. God is saying, I love you so much. I care about you so much. I chose you, and I've given you access to me. You have access to God. Direct access. You don't have to go through anybody else to talk with God. Let me tell you, let me tell you why I'm spending so much, much time on this. On this point here, it's important because I think Satan likes to keep Christians in, in the dark about this great truth. A lot of Christians think, well, I'm not good enough to pray. I'm not good enough to ask God for anything. I'm not good enough to ask God for a new job. I'm not good enough to go to God and ask him to help me with this health thing I'm going through. I don't deserve to ask God for anything. I, I'm not good enough to have access to God. And I want you to listen to me re really carefully. None of us are good enough to have access to God. None of us. None of us. We're all, we're all evil. It's one of the things that the Bible teaches. It's one of the things that I get lots of emails on, and I'll get some this week from some of you. You don't like that thought. But the Bible is crystal clear. We're all evil. We're all sinful. Some are just more evil than others. You see, what the world will teach is this. The world will tell you a lie. The world will say, you know what? You're all good. You're all intrinsically good. We as human beings are just good. No, that is not what the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us the truth about us. And the truth is, we're evil. Some are just more evil than others. Obviously, nobody in here is Hitler. He was really evil. You're not Jeffrey Dahmer. He was really evil. You're not Charlie Manson. He was really evil. But make no mistake about it, the scriptures are clear. We're all evil. None of us deserve to have access to God. None of us. It's only by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, he makes us good. He was perfect. He was holy. He was good. And when you invite him into your life, guess what happens? He does exactly what you ask him to do. He comes into your life. And now the Father looks down from heaven and doesn't see the evil in your life, the sin in your life. He now sees his Son, his righteous Son, his holy Son, his good Son. And he's the one who makes you good enough to have direct access, if you will, to God. He's the one. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, because of Christ... Because of our faith in him, because we've trusted in him, we now can come boldly and confidently into God's presence. If not for Christ, 
if not for your relationship with Christ, you don't come boldly into his presence. But listen to me, Christian. You're acceptable to him. He chose you. And you have access to him. He wants you to be with him. He's made a way toward that veil to say to all of you, come, be with me, talk to me, sit with me. Now, not only did the priests have access to God, but they also acted as the servants of God. So when God calls you a royal priest, it also means that you're a servant of God. Yeah, he chose you, you're acceptable to him, and and yes, you have access to him, but you're also a servant of God. That's number three. Beloved, the priests were the ones that served God in his temple. They did all the spiritual things that he wanted done. Well, Well, once you gave your life to the Lord, at that very moment, you became a part of this royal priesthood. You became one of God's servants. God has something now he wants you to do. Imagine that. That the God who created everything says, hey, you're one of, my, one of my royal priests, and not only do you have access to me, but hey, I've got some things that I want you to do with your life. In a few weeks, I'm going to talk more about this, Lord, Lord willing, but I do want to give you a quick thought here. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for we, you, are God's workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Those good works don't save you. But, but God, God says, look, you're one of my servants. I've got some things I want you to do. I want you to go out and live your life to, to my glory. I want you to live in such a way that people see your life and it brings honor to the Father. You know, there's coming a moment, the Bible says, when Jesus will look at us. And I want, him to, I want to hear these words. He, he says this, well done my good and faithful servant. Done. There's an idea of action there. God's not going to say, hey, I'm well thought through. Hey, I'm glad you got all the doctrines down. It's well done. It's well done. You lived out the faith. You see, I know a lot of Christians and I say this all the time, who, man, they can tell you all kinds of stuff on all kinds of topics in the Bible. I mean, they're experts in the field. They're useless for the kingdom, but they know a lot about the Bible. God's word said, all knowledge does is puff up. It just makes you arrogant. That's all it does. Now, you have to know some things, but hopefully that knowledge moves you into action. James, our brother, says, don't don't just be a a hearer of the word. Don't, Don't just be somebody who's an expert in all the doctrines and stuff, and you need to be. But be a doer of it. Paul says, you are are God's masterpiece. You're his creation. He created you that you would do these good things 
These good works. Now, I don't do this very often, but I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn right now to Ephesians chapter 2. And the reason why I don't do this very often is I know we have a lot of new believers here. And if I had you turn to every verse, by the time you got to some of them, I'd be five verses down the way. That's why I put them on the jumbotrons. That's why I put the verses in your notes. There's nothing magical about reading a verse in this book. You can see the verse up there, and it's every bit as powerful if it's in this book. You can read the verse in those note sheets, and it's every bit as powerful if you're reading it from here. You can read the verse in your smartphone, and it's every bit as powerful if, if you're reading it here. I just want you to see the word. But I do want you to turn there right now, Ephesians chapter 2. Because I've done something in my Bible, and some of you would never do this. I write in my Bible, and, and I know some of you wouldn't do that, and that's okay. Because the word is, you know, it's a special thing to you. And I, I get that. I'm not telling you to write in your Bible if you don't want to. But a lot of Christians do. And I, I want you to see what I wrote in my Bible. I took that Ephesians 2 and I made it personal. Rick, you are God's workmanship. In other words, Rick, when you were inside your mother's womb, I put you together just the way you are. For a purpose. That you would go and do good you know, good works, good deeds. And I prepared those good deeds well before you were ever born, before you were ever a twinkle in your parents' eyes. I knew you. And I created you that you would be my servant, you see. That you would, there's, there's some action in, involved in this. Let, let, let me give you a, a, an illustration. Years ago, our, our, our middle daughter, she's in junior high now, but she was just a little kid, we found some mice in our backyard, so we went out and put some traps out there, and it was now late at night, and I wanted to go out and check on these traps, because I didn't want her to, you know, see Mickey with a big steel bar across <laughs> his head, you know. I was just going to go, oh, yeah, I found him, and let him go in the neighbor's yard. Anyway, so I, I went and, you know, found this flashlight underneath our bed, and, you know, click, click, click nothing. Nothing happening. It, it was dead. It was dead because the batteries had corroded. Now, why had the batteries corroded? They were corro corroded because they hadn't been used in a long time. You see, batteries are made to be used. And if they just sit around in a flashlight for year, years and they never get to use the energy stored within them, it goofs them up. If they don't use the energy that's stored within them, it'll corrode. The Bible says that God put his Holy Spirit inside of you, the greatest battery ever. And the reason why some of you aren't experiencing this incredible life is because you're corroding. You're not using that energy to serve the Lord. And so here's this great energy source within you, the power of the Holy Spirit. And there it is. And you're corroding. Look, God chose you. He accepted you. you. You have access to him. 
And he says, hey, now I've got some things I want you to do with your life. I want you to serve me. That's what I created you for. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And, And here's the deal. Listen, thought about this. I think that those phrases, serve others, you see that there? And and gave my life. I think those might be phrases that best summarize the Christian life. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He came to serve. And he came to give his life away. That that kind of summarizes the Christian life to a big degree, that we serve, that we give our lives away, and God puts, you know, a huge battery inside of us, his spirit, that we would have the power to pull it off. Look, unless you, you really learn how to serve others and unless you learn to give your life away, you'll just never be like Jesus. You'll never be like him. It's one of the things about this church is that we're always constantly talking about love and so get out there, do things, move, 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 go. Come here, I, I like this, it's good, and God wants us to do this. But in too many churches, especially in America, this is it. Get out, go, live, do, get out there, serve the Lord, be salt, be light. We can't just show up here and navel gaze all week long. You can't do that. We'll start to corrode, and we become useless. So we have a whole nation that, you know, claims that they're believers, but man, you'd never know that by looking at our nation, would you? Number four, man. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then he says, you are a people belonging to God. You belong to God. You belong to God, and what that means is is you're valuable. You're valuable to God. Now, I'm not talking about your net worth. I'm talking about your self-worth. Your net worth and your self-worth are two different things. Don't ever confuse your valuables with your value as a person. When Jesus died on that cross... He didn't care about how much money you have in your 401k or 403b or whatever. He didn't care about that. You were made in the very image of God. You're valuable to him. By the way, what what creates value? What makes something valuable? Well, I've told you this before, but... I'm gonna tell you again, there are two things that basically make something valuable. Number one, value is determined by what somebody's willing to pay for something. How much is your house worth? It's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. That's what it's worth. How much is a Pete Rose rookie card worth? To some of you, it's not worth a thing. To some of you, it's pretty valuable because you'd be willing to pay for it. What's a piece of art worth? Well, it's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for, right? Number two, value is determined by who has owned it in the past. I I read where a simple pair of tennis shoes sold for over $7,000. Why? Because that pair of tennis shoes was owned by Michael Jordan. Because he owned them in the past, that made it more, those shoes more valuable. 
The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, God paid a high price for you. And what was the price? His son. I don't know how the conversation went down, but in my mind, I imagine that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were living in perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect love. He creates us in his image. They saw how sin had marred the image, how sin had messed up everything between us and them. And the Father says to the Son, Son, they could never clean up themselves to the degree that I would choose them or give them access to me or let them be one of my servants. Someone's got to pay the price for their sin. And he sends his son here. Wow, you must be really valuable. You must just be incredibly valuable. Some of you have never thought about that. You are so valuable that God took the most precious thing he had, his son, and said, go. Maybe you had nobody in your life who loved you. Maybe, maybe everybody called you a jerk and no one loved you. I don't know. All I know is this, is that God paid an incredible price for you. Think about it, if a pair of tennis shoes is, is made more valuable because Michael Jordan owned them, imagine what you must be worth. You're owned by the Lord. Whoa. God made you, he created you, he died for you, he saved you. God says, I've accepted you, you have access to me, you're, you're, you're one of my servants and, and you're unbelievably valuable to me. About three years ago or so, my wife and I bought a new car, we bought a, a, a Toyota and somebody snuck up and uh, changed the back license plate frame. And, and we didn't see it one day. You know, I'm out there cleaning the car or whatever. And this is what I, what I, what I saw. God loves you, but I'm his favorite. And, I, and I, remember, I remember looking at it going, hey, who put that on there? And so I go into my garage, you know, to get a screwdriver. And I was going to start taking it off. And I went, Wait a minute. You know, God sent his son for me. I'm valuable to God. I have access to God. I'm one of his servants. You know what? I think I might be his favorite. <laughs> I mean, who, who would do that? I want you to know, folks, that's the attitude that I have. When I think about all that, you know, God's done for me, when I think about how God sees me, I just come to the conclusion. I have no doubt he loves you. I have no doubt about that. But I, I tell you, I just got to be his favorite. Now, I want you to know, I've gotten some emails from some people. Hey, that's really arrogant to think that you're his favorite. Listen, quit envying me, okay? <laughs> go, go get your own license plate and put it on there, and we can battle it out over who's his favorite, okay? I, Crying out loud, if I want to think I'm his favorite, I'll think I'm his favorite. And let me tell you something, when I think about all that God's done for me, 
I've come to one conclusion. I got to be. Here's some of your problem. You don't believe that. You really don't. You've still got this warped view. And you don't really believe that God loves you. You don't really believe that you could be like one of God's favorites. You just, you just don't believe it. It's one of the reasons why you're not experiencing this rich and satisfying life that God came to give you. And last but not least, and I'll hustle through this, you're, you're forgiven by God. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people of God, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, let me tell you what's really sad to me. There are, are, are too many Christians, maybe you, who think that whenever a problem comes up, something crummy happens in your life, something crummy happens in your family, you immediately go here. Oh, it must be God punishing me for all my sins. That's the first thought that comes to your mind. I just, it bums me out. I wonder what that does to the Father to think that you would think that. Listen to what the Bible says. I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and I will never think of them again. When God forgives you of your sin, he doesn't think of them again. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of have them sitting right here and he's just watching your life. Okay, there, oh, there she goes. Okay, yeah, let me throw all these sins at you now. Because you've been saving all this up. Now let me just hammer you. I mean, he either, he's either trustworthy or he's not. Psalms 103 says, God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And some of you don't understand the significance of that. If God would have said, if the word would have said, he has removed your sin as far as the north is from the south, we got trouble. And some of you don't understand why. Let me tell you why. If you're at the North Pole, and you start heading north, or you start heading south, when you finally get to the South Pole, and now you start going up, you're heading north again. South, north. In other words, it comes back around. When you start heading east, you're always going east. You never go west. You don't get halfway around the globe and, oh, now I'm going west. No, once you go east, you're always going east. If you go west, you're always going west. So when God says, I've forgiven your sins as far as the east is from the west, never comes back around. Amen. He forgets about it. And so when something crummy happens in your life, listen to me, it isn't God going, yeah, okay, now this is what, that, whoo-hoo. My mother, God rest her soul, she had a pretty good memory. <laughs> <laughs> And I would blow it as a teenager, you know? And my mom would just go in, no, 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 and she'd go back, when you were a freshman, when you were in eighth grade, you know, when you were in third grade, back in 62, I mean, she, she could just remember everything. She'd run through the whole litany of all the crummy things in my life. So I gave my life to Jesus. And guess what I thought? He's got them all there. Yeah, he forgave me, and yeah, he loves me, but man, if I blow it, 
They're all coming back up. You see, I had to read the word of God to get the clear image. God has forgotten them. They're done. The Bible says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. There was a man who, about a year ago, used to come into the Welcome Center all the time, and he told me I could share the story. And just about every Sunday, he'd come into the Welcome Center and say, God has convicted me of this sin, Pastor. Hey, Pastor Rick, God's convicted me of this sin. I mean, every week he would come in and tell me about, oh, God's convicted me of this sin. God's convicted me of this sin. And one day I said, hey, come here. I took him into the corner of the, uh, of the you know, welcome center. And I said to him, listen, does God ever have anything nice to say to you? Because, dude, this has got to be a drag for your life, man. Now, I think God convicts us of our sins. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But sometimes that's the impression that some have. You know, that, that's his whole job. He just follows you around and, oh, you blew it. I'm convicting you. You blew it. That's what I do. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's like, you know, the guardian of your sin. The Bible is either true or it's not. And he says he doesn't remember your sin. Over and done with. Does God convict us of our sin? Yes, he does. But I want you to know the word of God says that you're, you're chosen. You're accepted by God. You have access to God. Come, God says, come, come, let's hang out. Hey, you're one of his servants, you. God chose you to be the starting shortstop on his Yankees team, you. You get to be one of his servants. He says, I want you to know you're really valuable. And try to explain how valuable you are. I can't even do it because I can't put a value on my son. That, that, that's what it costs. And I've forgiven you. I've forgiven you. I think for some of you, you ought to take these five things. In fact, this is a little homework assignment. I'm accepted by God. I have access to God. I I'm a servant of God, I'm valuable to God, I'm forgiven by God. And you ought to put them on a little three-by-five card. And guys, put them on your you know, mirror and when you're shaving, just look at them. Ladies, when you're putting on your makeup, just ought to look at that. Put them inside your car as you're driving, look at them. Take them to your office, guys, gals, and just put them on a desk. And, and I want you to know, that's how God sees you. That is truth. There's no distortion in that. That's the reality. And if you could grasp just those five things, and by the way, that's not a comprehensive list, but it's a pretty good one. I'm telling you, it'll, it'll revolutionize your life. Hey, why don't you stand over in the venue? Would you just stand and Pastor Scott's gonna come and pray for us. And if you just close your eyes for a moment, I, I wanna remind you to pick up your... your up for prayer. We want everybody here in a couple weeks praying, okay? You're not going to have to pray out loud or anything like that. But we want everybody to sign up, and so make sure you, you, you do that on the way out. Scott, would you, would you pray for us?